Hi, this is Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. This week, I'll learn the difference between being a black sheep and a red one, and also how sometimes it's difficult to know what's true when you're told so many versions of the truth, and how sometimes, for some people, the answers, or the unanswers, can drive someone to seek whatever solace and truth they can, wherever they can. Like this song by Curtis Mayfield, who was truly super fly. I'm your doctor when in need. Want some coke, have some weed. You know me, I'm your friend, your main boy, thick and thin. I'm your pusher man. I'm your pusher man.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua, where we've just begun a new decade. It's the summer of 1970 when these next two stories occur, and after what was arguably the worst two years the planet had ever seen, civil and political unrest in the, in the United States was the worst it had been in almost anyone's living memory. And it makes me wonder if we are poised to enter another such time. I still haven't yet fully comprehended that I will likely be living soon through another such period as as that one. But as I record this, it's still 2016, well, for the next few days anyway. And I hold a guarded, watchful hope that no matter what storms may loom on the horizon, we will all be okay in the end. But all speculation is moot, isn't it, until we see the exact hands this devil's deal in the coming administration. The last half of 1969 saw extremes of human achievement and hope for peace through music with the Apollo 11 moon landing and Woodstock, and then despair through the wanton murders committed by Charles Manson and at a concert called Altamont. 1970 actually began with hope. In March, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which prevented the further spread and creation of nuclear weapons, went into effect after it was ratified in the United Nations. And then in April... Apollo 13 suffered several potentially deadly malfunctions on its way to the moon, but returned safely against all odds and spawned the catchphrase, Houston, we've had a problem. Later in April, the first Earth Day was celebrated on my mother's 38th birthday. But also that month, President Nixon ordered a secret invasion of Cambodia by U.S. and South Vietnamese troops which only served to further fuel anti-war sentiment. And that very next month, on May 4th, United States National Guardsmen shot and killed four college students during a protest at Kent State University in Ohio. And in July, the 26th Amendment to the United States Constitution lowered the voting age to 18. And so at last, those who were being drafted would now have the right to vote against those who were sending them to die. And soon they would, but not yet. And to remember that, here's a song from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Four Dead in Ohio from Four Way Street in 
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. In the summer of 1970, I flew on an airplane for the very first time, traveling with my father and brother to South Florida, where most of my father's family had moved the previous year. My grandma Izzy was a prolific letter writer who would have been the queen of Facebook had it existed back then, as she loved nothing more than letting all the New York City branch of the family know exactly what they were missing in paradise, the closest place to Puerto Rico she could find in the United States, Hollywood, Florida. Through letters, someone somewhat like this one, from Chapter 14 of Fish Out of Agua, La Pirata. Dear Michelle, I hope that when you get this letter, you, your brother Kevin, your mother and your father are all in the best of health. We are all very, 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 very fine here in Florida. And we are very busy getting the new house ready for everyone to come next month. Uncle Freddy and Uncle Junior will be coming down. Uncle Papo and Frankie and your cousins Isabel, Damaris and Willie will be so happy to see you. But I hear your mother is staying home. I hope she will change her mind. She would love it in the backyard. It is the closest thing to Cabo Rojo I could find. I have two banana trees, a lime tree, an avocado tree, and a big mango tree in my new backyard. Ah, oh, you will love the mangoes. They are so juicy and so good. In fact, the only bad thing about Florida is that there are no subways or guaguas. Well, there are some buses sometimes, but they are not very good. So, now for the first time, your grandfather has learned to drive. And we have a car. Oh, mija, there is also one thing I wanted to tell you before you come to Florida. The day you came over before we moved to the old apartamento in El Bronx, I heard you asking your father where did he come from. Now, I, I do not know what your father has told you, but you are a big girl now, and it is time that you know the truth about our family. We are not Los Hibaros, like where your mother's family comes from. I mean, even though your grandma Mari and your mother and her sisters are very nice, and you know I love them all as much as I love you, Michelle. Ah, here is one dollar for you to buy stamps with. You tell your father that I sent it so he doesn't let you spend it on ice cream. Stamps only. And Michelle, you be careful. Ten cuidado with the ice cream. You eat too much and you will get the diabetes like me. Hmm. Anyway, now while I think of it, you tell your father that I told him that he needs to stop eating so much ice cream too. See you in Augusto. Love, Grandma Isabel. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Now, before we get to our next story, it's time to showcase Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Our last three interviews have all been with women, so I figured, eh, it's time to have a guy on the show again. <laughs> oh, no, but please, absolutely no disrespect at all intended for this amazingly articulate English and Spanish prolific theater artist, Greg Veillon. Hey, Greg, if you're listening, I finally got the L.A. right. Ha ha, or should I say, ya yeah, ya. Yeah. I 
Ready? Hi, this is Michelle Carlo with Fish Out of Agua's featured guest artist of the week, wow. Greg Bayon. Look at that. Hey, I know. So, um, so full disclosure, I was pronouncing it wrong because my Spanish is mangled, and when things are a double L in Spanish, you pronounce the Y. So B E L L O N is Bayon. So, how many people call you Bellin? <laughs> Uh, only if I'm lucky. There's worse pronunciations I get out there. Yeah. Your Spanish is like so mad good. I'm just so impressed. So there's security at the place where we're recording this interview. Shh. Another sneak thing that we're doing. Gorilla. And yeah, gorilla. So um, there was a lady who was was trying to get in, but she she didn't have the she wasn't on the, she wasn't on the list. No, and, and ella no está. And, and, and la lista. And lista always means smart. So if she was smart, if she was lista, she would have been on the lista, but she wasn't. And they asked me to say, they were like, you speak Spanish? I was like, eh, eh, eh. So Greg steps in, and he was like going, blah, 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 and I understood every word, and I couldn't have said any of it. But he, he did good. Only Cubans, I think, would have understood it. Hey, now I understood it. Okay, so more rivalry over here. <laughs> Greg! Tell us what you do artistic-wise, because sometimes I can't even friggin' figure it out. There's so many awesome things. Well, yeah, I uh, I guess I do I do a lot of different things, from performing to designing to directing to production management to technical direction to playwriting. At the moment, what I'm doing is uh, I've got a young little puppet company called Puppet Factory. We do um, we do puppet building workshops, and we're creating theater works that are puppet-based and involve puppetry of all kinds. So, you know, sometimes to, again, the bread and butter to pay bills. We do some workshops. We do, we've do. we been involved in the Maker Fair. We've been involved with the New York Hall of Science. We'll be there from the 26th through the 30th doing a, an event there, a little performance workshop installation. Um, but I'm also a production stage manager at the moment right now off-Broadway, and I'm production managing a couple of shows Tell us some of the shows. Tell us some of the shows that you've been working that you've been working on the past couple of years. Um, I, I tour extensively as well as a production manager. I've been touring with uh, comedians uh, Eddie Izzard and Billy Connolly. Oh, he's as so well funny. As, yeah, as well as doing some other kinds of touring, live event, uh, you know, and theatrical stuff. Uh, the Infinite Monkey Cage was another one we just did, uh, mm. which was a hybrid radio live radio show that we did that we broadcast and was co-produced by the BBC, which was fun. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like I said, I'm involved in any musical right now, which is an off-Broadway musical, and so there you go. Like, and that sounds so incredibly fancy, but I'm going to tell you how I know, Greg, <laughs> lest you think that I was involved in fancy. any of these highfalutin productions. No, I know Greg, of course, through the art stars. And um, Greg is partnered with one of my good friends named Tanya Odeber, who was part of this um, iconic comedy duo called the Odeber Twins, who also segued into playwriting and acting. And you actually had a big... Um, role in several of her productions, didn't you? Oh, yes, 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 yes. With, uh, with Ms. Odebra and the Odebra twins. Uh, just recently, we debuted The Secrets of Avondale Falls, or I guess remounted or redid uh, a version of their uh, Secrets of Avondale Falls, which is uh, a madcap romp uh, of a soap opera. Uh, and uh, with Tanya herself, I've uh, been involved in her in several of her productions, her Shut Up Emily Dickinson, which we did. We toured just recently, and um, her world-famous radio, radio star. star. Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. I always say that when I grow up, I want to be like Tanya, although I think Tanya's like 17 years younger than me. <laughs> oh, grow my down, God. Yeah. yeah, I have to grow down. Oh, my God. So how did you get started being an artist? Uh, I guess that just, you know, it, it's one of those things that, you, you know, so you don't really... 
you don't really remember what it is. It's, it almost seems like it's just a part of who you are rather than mm-hmm. what, what you've chosen to do. Was it something that from childhood? Like for me, I was always drawing. Drawing, drawing, drawing was the way that I dealt with frustration and anger and disappointment and everything. And I just, that was my way out of yeah. whatever situation I, I was in. And I always had this burning desire to be an artist, which I eventually went to School of Visual Arts and now I do this. So like your life takes so many paths. I'm just yeah. interested in hearing a little bit about your path. Like where uh, did you grow up? And- I don't know. I, I haven't, I mean, I grew up in Miami. My family's Cuban. Uh, I was part of that wave of 60s exodus uh, and exile. Uh, so grew up in Miami, but for all intents and purposes, for me, that was Havana, hmm. you know. Uh, but but in terms of my arts, uh, it just always seemed to be a part of what, of what like, it seemed like it always was a part of what my environment, my world hmm. was. You know, my grandfather was a carpenter, but he would go to do singing contests. And yeah, he had, really? He oh, had my a, God. He had a crazy-ass organ in his house, too, that... He didn't know how to play, but he bought it and then just would learn music from books and sing along to these songs, and we would mess around with that stuff. And my mother was, again, another singer when she was younger, but, you know, eventually, you know, as as things happen and, you know, life happens and whatever, and life in exile is different than, you know, than you expected sometimes. So are you first generation? Yes. Wow. So how did your parents get to come here? Did they... My parents came here separately. My parents came here separately. My grandfather, the lore is my grandfather, my mother's... Father is the first one that gets out, and you know he tells the story of a spirit that comes to visit him one day and tells him that he must leave, and he he wraps his mind around it and gets his brother-in-law and says we've got to go and we've got to go now, and he just makes enough plans with the people we know and some family to leave my grandmother and the five daughters and all of their extended families and whatever else was happening. They were all teenagers still, the youngest of which was eight. My youngest aunt was eight at the time. And so he gets on a plane, and the first plane out is going to Toronto, and he ends up in Toronto, Canada. And he's never been outside of Cuba, but now he all of a sudden is in Toronto with his brother-in-law. Was it winter? It was winter. Ideal. Um, but, you know, but they were they were mad. They immediately go to the embassy. They ask for asylum right. and blah, blah, and they go through the process of that. It takes months and months and months for him to slowly get the family out, and then the family comes to Toronto, and... You know, then to New York, and then they couldn't stand the cold, so it was eventually down to Miami. And by you know, by the late '60s, both of my parents are in Miami, and they actually meet in Miami. Have families who knew each other in Cuba, but then come to Miami and meet each other in Miami, and that's wow. Yeah. Isn't that 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 is something? How that that lineage just keeps going on and on and yeah. on. Like so many stories. Did you know um, Gabrielle Saint Eve has ties to that area? You know Gabrielle Saint Eve, yep, right? Yep. She she was on the show about three episodes right, ago, right, right. and she I think she grew up in Cor- more by Coral Gables. Coral Gables, and she sure. has a similar thing going on with with her with her mom's side of the family. Yeah. So it's just just incredible. well, that's a typical story in Miami. That is the a typical diaspora. story, but also up here in Union City, there's a large population yeah. of Cubans in Union City, yeah. and I would imagine. And I know I, I worked with a company out there, Hudson Exploited Theater Company. It's still around, uh, um, and we would make we were making what was what we considered was contemporary American mm. art and theater, which included part of our story as. Cuban Whoa. dash slash Americans. Yeah. Or dash whatever. slash. We never called ourselves Cuban Americans, and Cuban American is just an invented term that now, like everything slash American, has been invented. We we actually, for us growing up, it was Cubans, and there were Americans, and then there were other groups, and for us, we were not part of the American group. We were different. Yeah, we were the same. The same thing with. You know. with and I know what happened up. in Union City. They had the same experience here. Yeah. So even though we grew up in, 
sort of disparate parts of this country, we have similar experiences that way. Yeah, and sort of telling your story, I just, I don't, just to cut you off, because no, the, no, the, the art thing was part of what I feel, that's why I'm saying it's part of always been my, my sort of context for life in general, was this whole notion of like the human condition being about, or, or art being about exploring the human condition and communicating the human condition, and that's what I grew up in an environment of that, of like having to tell our story and having that's to tell great. that kind of thing, and sort of the whole like... And I say my grandfather in particular was an influence in that respect because he was a man of, he was a sort of quotidian man. He was a carpenter and a contractor during the day, but this was a man who, like I said, would go to singing contests and he was, on Sundays he would tell stories and his stories weren't just religious, they weren't religious stories per se. They were these stories about life and about our thing and it just happened to be our thing was exile. That's crazy. You know? And That's that just becomes amazing. art. Like yes. That becomes the way you think about the world. And so now for me it's like part of my being in the world is to always be a part of that kind of thing. Whether it's expressing it, whether it's facilitating it, yeah. whatever those things are, and that's how I happen to find myself now. Is sometimes I'm facilitating for an artist by being a manager, production manager or designer of some sort. Sometimes I am the artist, you know. When you were performing, what did you used to do? Well, I mean, I'm, and I'm still performing. You right. know, and like I said, and just recently I performed with, you know, with the Odebras in, you know. Right, in and that was yeah. And that was a live theater piece that was a radio show. And right, so, but I mean before. Well, I mean, all kinds of things. I'd written my own plays, but I started actually my first paid acting yeah, gig. I was a stuntman. I was, really? Yeah. For who? I was a stuntman at Six Flags Great Adventure Theme Park. I was Batman. Oh in, my god! In there, I was. I was. I was here in acting school, and I was in a master class for combat, stage combat. And one of the instructors happened to be the director of the show, and he saw me on my motorcycle after the thing, and he said, "Hey, do you want to come audition?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll come audition." It was my last semester of school, and I was about to go out and try to be. A working actor try. Oh my god. And I went to the audition and I flubbed it up. I have a great storytelling show that I have about that, which is about head injuries, but that involves one of them involves crashing a lot as Batman. When oh I was my god. When I was learning how to be a stuntman uh, right off the cuff, because I was an actor who had just gone through all this training. Stage combat in particular was this like brilliant thing that I found was a great way to be like, if you could pull off a stage fight, you could pull off most things on stage. Yes. So for me, pulling off a stage fight was the epitome of like the craft there at the time. And so being asked to be a Stuntman from that class, I was like, "Wow, yeah, sure." And then, but I wasn't a stunt, a motorcycle stuntman. So no. I rode motorcycles, and I was an actor who happened to say, "Yeah, sure." I, I lied, you know, like you do many times. You're like, "I'm gonna lie and say yes, and I'll figure it out while I'm doing it." <laughs> you know. So luckily, I had a month to figure it out and crash the shit out of a bike, out of the the Bruce Wayne bike, which they had to rebuild twice. And so it was, and it was funny because speaking of this whole notion of like you know, this whole Latino context for whatever it is you are, it's just always been what, what I am, right? And so yeah. you get to find it out. There's always the, the whole, the other, and that kind of thing. I can also pass. So there's that, too. Oh, we had a whole conversation So about there's passing that. and being a Cuban and being a sort of, you know, what now is called, like, a white Cuban, which is even, that's not even what a thing. That's not even a thing. I know, but there is, like, you read about shit that like that, so and you're stupid. like, what the fuck are people, like, people are inventing these things. Like, that's a thing, right? Like, it's not just being a Cuban is being a Cuban. So it's just funny being the epitome of like an American icon as Batman yes. in the show. And that's yeah. my first thing yeah. when like I was coming to, you know, and I was still, you know, I was still finding ways to like 
I was having trouble. I had a manager, the multi-ethnic management was the name of this company, and they were they were representing me, quote unquote, sending me out to calls, you know. Oh my god. And they would be calling Latino actors and I'd show up and all of a sudden I get the whole like, well, you're maybe here for the wrong thing. And yeah. I was like, what? That like, happened no. to me a lot. What is you know, just show me the copy. Yeah. You know, too, like, too bad in the in the Batman outfit, you couldn't have just come out wearing <laughs> the Batman whole regalia and say, Domingo, and then start swaying your hips, and people would just like start fading. It would have had to have been some Tony Montana thing for people to even get the Cuban <laughs> reference, and then that's, that's Al Pacino, true. you know. And like, yeah, yeah. don't even get me started on Al Pacino playing no. a Cuban. And then and then you have to like do like Desi Arnaz, and that's no whole other thing. But I have nothing but respect for Desi and Lucy. Desi Arnaz, Desi in particular was a great, brilliant musician who happened to take advantage of his fame in a way that he could. Mm -hmm. It was though it, it was, would be very difficult to not. You know, you would have to be like a superhuman person to yeah. not get sucked up in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no reason to think that Desi wouldn't have used his platform. The problem was is that, you know, whatever, that's pre-revolution or that's right in the midst of it too and he's like, he's got this whole notion of like the band leader, you know, like the cha-cha-cha leader, um, you know, and the, how he's the stereotype and how of we this And how we're supposed to act. Well, and this whole like Americanization of what the thing was, of what Cuban uh -huh. was, and that was part of the revolution was all about get the fucking U.S. American interests out of Cuba because this is not serving Cuban interests. And so... In that way, I don't even want to get into talking about the revolutionary politics. Sorry to all of you out there who might be listening. Um, <laughs> you can contact, we're not going to start that. You, you can contact <laughs> Craig directly. Figure it out. <laughs> the three-hour extended director's cut that's got the Cuban Revolution yeah, 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 yeah. is later. But, you know, so Desi is, a, is in particular. But in my radio show that I do with Stefan Zanuck called Asuka and Dekagan Rimo de Cuba, which will be coming back. For New Year's Eve. Yay! Unofficially, we're going we're gonna to start podcasting it separately because we're no I longer can't podcast. Wait. But uh, we did a whole show on band leaders, and uh, we did we put Desi in there because he's certainly part of the tradition, and he's as talented as, as a lot yeah. of those guys. Not the most or any of those things. He just happened to be the guy who got famous because yes. he married a really famous American actor. Yes, yes, and they went on to do a lot of great comedy together. They, um, in, they started uh, the three-camera shoot, and they were instrumental in getting Star Trek produced and on the air. <laughs> Desi Lu Productions was be, was behind that, so you know what? If he started, Ooh. if he started Star Trek, that's enough for me. Your trivia moment brought to you by Cafe Butelo. <laughs> Drink Cafe Butelo. Ay, qué rico. Qué rico. <laughs> but you know, but the th the thing that I think a lot of um, people sometimes don't get is that you can't apply revisionist history to certain things. You know, you can't apply what people's understanding or sensitivity is now to people, places, and events that happened 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago because yeah. people, did, they did not have that mindset because people are who they are, when they're born, where they're born, and how they grow up. And nothing, is, nothing of today is going to change that. And, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, well, it's a hard thing to reconcile. Yeah, and we have, we have, you know, again, we have 60 years worth of history right. now that, right. that, you know, that you, can't, that you can't deny either, but, that, but you can't judge everything prior to that right. based on the last no. 60 years. Like, for example, there's a, a Christmas song that you always hear. It's called Baby, It's Cold Outside, mm -hmm. and it's being deconstructed now as a date rape song. Yes. And, <laughs> I'm, and I read this whole thread, um, I'm not going to say where, on, on the socials somewhere, and it was, I was just like, 
how do you put all this into there? How do you know that this couple has, hasn't been going out for, and they're doing role play? You mm-hmm. want to put that spin on? I mean, whatever. I don't know. I don't even. I don't even want. I don't even want to open up that can of worms either. You don't want to open up the revolution. I don't want to open up reinterpreting songs and and finding ways to be offended. What are we gonna do, Greg? We're just gonna continue to make art. He's got a creepy voice, though. You gotta admit, in the song, he's got a creepy voice. Yeah, a lot of people have Maybe creepy it's voices. It sounds like it, it's right on the line there of like you know sociopath and genius, but like creep and like yeah. romantic. Yeah, it's and I also of, heard like there were things when they used to sing it live that made it even creepier. But I I don't know. <laughs> it's a nice song. It's a fun song. Okay. All right. Anyway. So, Greg, uh, where can we f- can people find you if they want to talk about the revolution or see some of your fantastic <laughs> things? Well, um, look out for Asuka de Brooklyn, uh, which is our uh, our new uh, our new rebranding there on the radio show. New Year's Eve. Yeah, we're gonna uh, yeah December thirtieth. We're gonna put out a brand new show for your New Year's Eve playlist, four hours nonstop of all the music you love. That'll be great. I can't wait to hear it. All right, and, and now goodbye, Greg. Goodbye, Michelle. For now. Goodbye. And we're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. Back in 1970, when this next story happens, the average cost of a new house was $23,450. The average income was $9,400, and your average monthly rent, just $140 a month. And that brand new AMC Gremlin? $1,879. Throw in a brand new 8-track car stereo tape player, and that set you back another $38.99. Other things that happened in 1970. In London, George Gray is attributed to inventing the LCD, or liquid crystal display. And the first New York City marathon was run in Manhattan. Popular toys were Hot Wheels, Apollo moon rockets, Gigantor Robots, G.I. Joe Astronauts, Chatty Cathy Dolls, and Susie Homemaker Super Ovens because gender stereotypes, huh? Ironically or not, war films were popular this year, such as M.A.S.H., Patton, and Catch-22. Also in 1970, Queen Latifah, River Phoenix, and Tina Fey were born. The Beatles broke up, and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin would both die of drug overdoses, launching the age of 27 as the death age for musicians through the next generation. And I remember hearing this song on the radio a lot. It wasn't from 1970, it was from a few years earlier. But even though this song was actually written by Mike Nesmith of the Monkees, and I didn't give a hoot about the Monkees or boys yet, I always thought... The different drum Linda Ronstadt was talking about was me. You and I travel to the beat of a different drum. How can you tell by the way I run? Every time you make eyes at me, whoa, you cry and moan and say you work out. Don't get me wrong It's not that I knock it It's just that 
And now, Chapter 15 of Fish Out of Agua, Spanish on Sunday, Part 3. If Grandma Izzy had really asked me what I meant the day that I asked my father where he came from, I'd have told her that I only meant if he had come from work or from home. I'd left my drawing notebook at home, and I wanted him to bring it to me. Grandma Izzy was right about one thing, though. Until I was ten years old, I thought my father's family came from the Italian part of Puerto Rico. Well, anyway, that's what I'd always heard my father say to the people in our neighborhood. So that's what I always believed. The first thing Grandma Izzy did when I got to see her new house in Hollywood, Florida, was to take me to her backyard to see her mango tree. The backyard looked even better than she had said in her letters. It was a sprawling green canopy, heavy with ripe red-orange fruit. As I ran over to pick one, Grandma Izzy called me back and asked me if I would first bring her the milk crate from underneath the mango tree. And as I ran back to the tree and bent down to lift the slatted wooden box, a nest of what looked like huge, armored, brown cockroaches swarmed out and took flight around the tree in protest after having been disturbed from their afternoon nap. I dropped the box and I ran screaming back to the patio where Grandma Izzy stood in a halo of Bel Air lights. Mia, it's only palmetto bugs, Grandma Izzy chuckled. <laughs> you have to get used to them when you live here. And she smiled and patted me on the head. Come on, Michelle, it's time to eat. Another Sunday at another abuela's house. Only this house was in Hollywood, Florida, on a long, flat stretch of road with palm trees, croton, and hibiscus lining the sidewalks, and on the corner where, if the wind was right, you could smell the Atlantic Ocean just two miles away. This was where my uncles Frankie and Papo, and finally Grandma Izzy and Grandpa Ezekiel had all moved by 1970, leaving behind the South Bronx, burning buildings, cold winters, and cockroaches for faux haciendas, eternal summers, and flying cockroaches. Well, actually, palmetto bugs. Outside, on a back patio shaded by banana, lime, and avocado trees, was a table laden with enough food to feed the entire neighborhood, just like my New York grandmother's. And, just like in New York, full of food I didn't want to eat. I found a strange triangular object in my beans. I picked it up, and my fingers crushed through its gelatinous middle as a hard, pointy object came squirting out. Ew! I said, what's this? And I threw it at Kevin, right before he flung a forkful of rice at me. My cousins Isabel, Dematis, and Willie, who I hadn't seen for a couple of years, giggled. Stop playing with your food, Grandma Izzy said. It's pig's feet. They add sabol to the sofrito. For emphasis, she picked one, off, picked one up off her plate, sucked it between her teeth, and smacked her lips. Huh, you don't know what is good. After that dinner, my grandfather sported the occasional wiry reddish hair among his gray stubble and who spoke perfect English slapped his knee for me to come and sit with him. 
He bounced all 80 pounds of me as he told me a story. Although he was only 5 foot 5 inches tall and never weighed more than 145 pounds, he had been a merchant seaman and had traveled the world, always bringing back gifts. Kachina dolls for me, carved animal figures for Kevin, silk, silk scarves and perfume for my mother, whom he adored. Finally, he had retired, learned to drive at the age of 60, and moved to a place where he and my grandmother could pick ripe fruit from their own backyard and once again walk along a beach whenever they wanted. South Florida was almost like the island home they had left as teenagers over 40 years before. Michelle, you know where your red hair comes from, right, Muñeca? He started. The name Carlo comes from Italy, from Genoa. We helped to make the boats for Cristobal Columbus, but we had trouble with the queen, and then we became prisoners of the Spaniards. They took us to La Princesa prison in old San Juan, and they threw us in with all the pirates. But we escaped, and we made our way to Cabo Rojo. It was called something else before we came. But once the family got there, they renamed it Cabo Rojo because we were all Pedro Rojos, Colorados, redheads. For 400 years, the red hair has skipped every other generation. And that is how, if we ever go to Cabo Rojo together, they will know that you and I, everyone will know that we are Carlos. Grandma Izzy called from the back. Ezequiel! Stop putting stories into Michelle's head. For all of Grandma Izzy's love of practical jokes, she had little patience for what she considered fantasia, unless it was her own. Now, Ezequiel, you know that we all came from Mallorca and España, una gente muy importante. We were chased out for una poco de desacuerdo with the Queen's shipwrights. And then, Michelle, they sent us to Puerto Rico to die. But we were strong, and we lived. Bah! That's a lot of mahon. That was Uncle Junior cutting in. Uncle Junior had been silently drinking beer at the end of the table and stood up to talk about the Caribbean Indian tribes, the Taino, the Arawak, and the Caribe. These were our indigenous people who were raped and slaughtered by the Europeans and enslaved with the Africans and indentured Irish. These are all our brothers. We must never forget that we are a mix of the conquered and the conquerors, because then, at least, the conquered would not have died in vain. He went on for a little while longer, but as no one was listening to him, he sat back down quietly and opened another beer. Uncle Junior was the family's black sheep. He lived in downtown Manhattan, in the village, with his Japanese wife, who wasn't really his wife, and her son. He did have a first wife once, but I don't remember what happened to her. Uncle Junior painted, wrote poems, and played music. He'd also been addicted to heroin on and off since he was a teenager in the 1950s. A poorly kept family secret, which I knew because my father had brought me to his apartment once, and I had heard them fight about it. I remember the apartment having brick walls. 
A long one was a bookcase that ran from the floor to the ceiling and held more books and records than I had ever seen in anyone's house before. As I looked through the books, the Japanese wife who wasn't a wife's son, who was teenaged, fat, and had pimples, stared at me while my father and Uncle Junior argued in the backyard. I couldn't believe that an apartment would have a backyard with a garden, and I wanted to go back there, but I knew that I shouldn't. When we were leaving, Uncle Junior tried to give me a record, but my father gave it back. Whenever my father saw me drawing, he warned me to stop because he didn't want me to end up like Uncle Junior. Later that afternoon, I was by myself in the front yard trying to catch lizards, and I saw Uncle Junior come out, banging the screen door behind him. I immediately ran back inside for my drawing notebook, and then back out to the front yard to show him my drawings. I'm not sure why I wanted to. I guess I wanted him to know that I could draw too. Hmm, he said as he leafed through the book. You have a talent. Maybe. Maybe by this time, they will let you do something about it. And then his eyes went off of me and went into the distance, looking at something far, far away. He walked back into the house, and the screen door banged behind him. The next day, Uncle Junior flew back to New York alone, and I wondered why he even came to Florida at all. But this was before our secret moment together, back on the patio while we were eating, and I looked at my uncle's brown hair and beige skin and tried to picture Uncle Junior as a ruddy, red-headed Indian chief with a shield made out of palmetto bugs. Grandma Izzy had gone to sit in the lawn chair under one of the banana trees. She was smoking and watching him too. I walked over to Grandma Izzy and said, Abuelita, are we Indians? She took my freckled face in her hands and said, No te preocupe, it doesn't matter. You, Michel, are a very pretty girl. Just then, Uncle Freddy arrived with his family, including my other cousins, Nellie and Evelyn. It was also their first time in Florida. They ran up to ambush Grandma Izzy with hugs, but she stopped them and asked, Ah, espera de mi vida. Can you go out to the mango tree and get something for me first? Nellie and Evelyn ran out to the tree, and Grandma Izzy looked sideways at me, squinting and smoking. I was about to warn Nellie and Evelyn of the flying bugs, but I closed my mouth and returned to the dinner table under the trees where my grandfather, father, and uncles, minus Uncle Junior, who was no longer in the backyard, were all lifting Welch's jelly glasses, the ones with the Flintstones cartoon characters on them, half full of Bacardi 151 and Fundador brandy, toasting to La Pirata, the pirate. But before I could ask why they were doing that, Nellie and Evelyn screamed as the palmetto, blub, as the palmetto bugs once again flew out from under their tree. And once everyone had finally settled down, Grandma went over to the tree, picked a couple of mangoes, and we all had mango slices with vanilla ice cream for dessert. Two weeks later, 
I sat in my grandfather's brand-new used Dodge Dart with my father and brother. My grandfather and Grandma Izzy were driving us to the airport in Fort Lauderdale. My father yelled at my grandfather to slow down and look where he's going. But Grandpa Ezekiel had a small cigar clutched between his teeth and was hunched over the steering wheel like one of the humpbacked lizards I had spent my vacation trying to catch. His response to my father was to drive even faster and laugh. Grandma Izzy laughed too and held her cigarette out the window and I watched the smoke trail behind us. My brother was asleep on my shoulder. I looked at his straight dark brown hair and pink sunburned skin and then up at my reflection in the rearview mirror. After two and a half weeks in the tropical sun, I had had the first real suntan of my life. And it was hideous. Because instead of burning like my brother or turning a rich, nutty brown like my father, I'd become a sickly, yellowish, almond, beigey color that only served to underscore the hundreds of brown freckles that had now popped out all over my face. And my hair had lightened to the shade of a new copper penny. I remembered what Grandma Izzy told me that first day under the mango tree before she convinced my cousins Nellie and Evelyn that it was safe to go get the box and then pick the mangoes. You see those peccas on your face, Michelle? It is because El Señor could not figure out whether he wanted to you to be dark or light. So he made you both. <laughs> she laughed, patted me on the head, and took a long drag on her cigarette. Mira, Michelle, don't turn around, but what is that thing bossing around your head? August was over, and we were going home. Back to the Bronx. Back to school. Back to trying to figure it out all over again. We were from Spain, Africa, Ireland, and Italy. We were Tainos, Indians, shipwrights, aristocrats, slaves, and maybe even pirates. How could everyone all be so sure about being from other places when it was so long ago? And why didn't anyone ever actually say that we were Puerto Rican? Was there something wrong with it? How could I be Spanish or Italian or whatever with them, but when I was with kids in my neighborhood who also said they were Italian, they said that I was a spick. How could that be? How could I be one thing in one place and another thing somewhere else? Who was I? What was I? What was the truth? And why was everything always such a secret in this family? And that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you liked what you've heard today or on a past episode of Fish Out of Agua, please consider supporting the show with Patreon. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the Sponsor This Show button. It's that easy. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and while we get back to some hot tea with lemon and honey, we'll leave you with a couple of songs that pretty much summed up how I felt after that summer in Florida. Express Yourself 
smiling faces, and I've never been to Spain. See you next week.
you doing? It's what you doing when you doing what you look like you're doing. Express yourself. Express yourself. So good, oh, feel so good. Well, I. 